Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Viktor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Thomas Ilves, uh, former president of Estonia. Uh, Thomas, uh, do you remember where you were in 1989 when the war came down? Well, where was I? I was in uh, November of 89. I was at Radio Free Europe, which, uh, as you can imagine, at the time, with all these uh, various services full of people who are all been trying to get Eastern Europe liberated, um, where it was quite a wild time. And so we spent all our time in front of the TV. And I remember watching the day that they started chiseling at the wall and people are coming over, I think it was one of the few times I've cried in my life, at least out of happiness. I don't usually Why cry. did you cry? It seemed so unbelievable that this thing that had lasted for so long was so easily just falling apart and toppled. Did you take it for granted back then in 89 that this would represent the victory of democracy? I didn't take it for granted too much, but I assumed I've always I've I'd always held this uh, belief that given a chance, the people of Eastern Europe would uh, opt for liberal democracy, free and fair elections, adherence to human rights and rule of law, and that uh, they had been kept from that. And uh, well, that was more or less right for. Uh, about 27 years, <laughs> but but I assumed that, I mean, I didn't know what form it would take. And of course, uh, I was quite aware of the huge uh, income differentials between East and West. And I wasn't sure how that was going to be resolved. And I was aware of the various uh, huge problems that would come up with uh, you know, sort of privatization, ownership, what do you do with the bad guys uh, who did or who were all alive, and what's going to happen to them? So, uh, but uh, so I, yes, I was aware of the problems, but I, there was no way you could predict where things were going. Of course, the other great event of 1989 was Tim Berners-Lee's invention of the World Wide Web. Uh, do you think when historians look back, Berners-Lee's invention will seem as 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 significant? perhaps even more significant than the fall of the war? Absolutely. I was, I was 
The importance of Tim Berners-Lee's invention of the hypertext transfer protocol or the HTTP, which you now with an S at the end, which you see on every web page, uh, is probably uh, both the good and bad as uh, as monumental as the invention of movable type. Far more significant than the fall of the wall, which is now largely forgotten, uh, but uh, what he did is with us at all times. And uh, probably more important, the steam, steam engine, I would say. I mean, what else? I mean, basically, a complete revolution in communication and the way people interact. I mean, I would argue that, I mean, there have been a number of significant steps after that, which are perhaps as monumental, though not tied to any one single invention. But, but that, uh, that really was the first step in cre the creation of the digital era. The other thing, of course, that happened in 89 was that some people lost. There was a young KGB officer stationed in Dresden, whose name we all know, who was at the wrong end of a, a near riot. What do you think people like Putin learned in 89? And, and why are these lessons so significant today? Um, well, I think the first thing he, I don't know if he learned anything. Sometimes I think he hasn't learned anything. Uh, but certainly that uh, motivating force was the sense of humiliation and resentment that uh, it could all collapse so quickly, uh, which is, I think, one of the motivators behind, motivations behind much of what he does in sort of strengthening the state and, uh, and its repressive uh, nature. I mean, let's face it, Russia today is far less free than it was in the late Gorbachev period. I mean, you had, by 1989, 1990, you had a fairly free press uh, in the Soviet Union. And there were certain topics which you couldn't discuss still, including you know, the independence of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, and its occupation, and so forth. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, there was more freedom then than there is today. And so I think that in an effort to prevent a reoccurrence of 89, 91, I mean, 89 was the fall of the wall, 91 was the final collapse of the Soviet Union, is that um, you have seen the screws being tightened for beginning with about 2007, 2008. Um, when you would mark a definite turn away from the West, liberal democracy, and towards, excuse me, greater repression. I mean, the, the moment in 2007 was actually the February speech he gave at the Munich Security Conference in which he shocked everyone by basically lambasting everything, saying, you know, you people in the West, you have it all wrong. We're not going to go that way which shattered a lot of illusions. How important do you think um, the Russian narrative is in the contemporary crisis of democracy around the world? Obviously, Russia, Turkey, Hungary, Poland, Italy, perhaps even the United States. Well, the narrative line that is pushed, but not directly, but surreptitiously through the internet and other means 
certainly is that democracy is 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 as corrupt and as foul as anything anywhere else and there is no real difference between the authoritarianism of Russia and uh, the, what they snidely call liberal democracy in, in uh, well, as they actually say, gay ropa. I mean, this whole narrative that is very traditional, uh, anti-democratic, homophobic, highly nationalist. That's a, that's a narrative that is uh, spread, but not... Uh, but but I mean really through uh, I mean, surreptitiously, not as a uh, not as an outright formulated ideological position that is constantly presented as this is us, but rather <laughs> through uh, fomenting uh, discontent in across what we consider the democratic world, beginning with Eastern Europe, then Western Europe, clearly the United States. Canada. Let, let me sort of rephrase the question a little bit. How influential do you think Russian strategy is being, particularly their <laughs> internet strategy, their disinformation or misinformation campaign in undermining many Western and non-Western democracies? I don't know how to put a percentage on it, but I would say that it, it pushes. They it managed to push certain things over the edge. I would argue that Brexit, to some degree, as we have, we're finding out more and more, uh, the 2016 elections um, in the U.S. in the U.S. Uh, the presidential elections. I mean, it wasn't the crucial factor, but it was enough to, I think, push things in a different direction to make a difference in the results of the election. And this has been studied by uh, a number of uh, scholars. And Katie Jameson has done a fairly good work, fairly good work looking at really getting into the weeds of how digital manipulation managed to alter the results in a number of Midwest states through propaganda, through promoting a third-party candidate, Jill Stein, that if you actually look at the, the summation of the votes, actually Donald Trump lost, if you put Jill Stein plus Hillary Clinton, but there were, those were targeted by, by the Russians uh, to really promote Jill Stein. And so as a result, Donald Trump received, you know, so it got the electoral college votes that he needed. So Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, Pennsylvania. How uh, surprised were you given your experience as Estonian president and the Estonian experience of Russian digital warfare? How surprised were you with the success and the intensity of this Russian effort to undermine Western democracy? Well, I think it's become clear over time because, at, I mean, when these things, in 2016, I had perhaps more of an inkling than some others that there was some funny stuff going on, but the extent of it, so for example, the role of uh, uh, computational propaganda, I guess is the term that we would use, but say the, the role of Cambridge Analytica in, in micro-targeting uh, ads uh, on Facebook was something that it looked fishy. I mean, we didn't know they were micro-targeting. It just looked fishy that there was this uh, 
this massive uprising of kind of weird stuff and the and the fake news that was being spread artificial i mean sort of artificial newspapers with stories that were outrageous and they were constantly being shared there was something going on i mean there was this statistic that was came out you know just shortly after the us election where there was something like 2.7 million uh, fake news articles were shared on Facebook uh, regarding the election in the three months leading up to the election. And there was 2.3 million uh, real news articles were shared. So you're already seeing, I mean, this is, I mean, if you think the standard thing would be to be 2.3 million news articles that are shared, but then you find that 2.7 are absolute lies and people because those articles are m more uh, outrageous or bizarre shared those articles so they were viewed by more people than viewed the real news and uh, today facebook uh, and twitter are for much in the west at least the primary source of news as president of estonia uh, you you pioneered uh, a very innovative kind of e-democracy, electronic democracy, particularly bound up with the internet. How much of your thinking about the Estonian e-democratic experiment was triggered by the experience of being so close to Russia and of being subjected to a, a kind of a the so-called first digital world war in 2007? Well, we were so far along in, on our path in 2007 that um, we had already made our decisions and we had our policies had been worked out and we had implemented all kinds of innovative solutions. Rather, I would say that the reason Estonia chose this path was that um, uh, we saw this as a way to really leapfrog in development because you realize when we became independent in 1991, we were so far behind. Estonia and our northern neighbor Finland uh, in 1938, the last year before World, full year before World War II, had basically the same GDP per capita. When uh, we in 1992, which is the first full year after independence in which you could measure actually the economy, uh, the Finnish economy was eight times larger per capita. So, I mean, they were their uh, per capita income was twenty three thousand U.S. dollars, and the Estonian per capita income was two thousand eight hundred dollars. And so, uh, we saw technology as a, a way to leapfrog a lot of development to be on a level playing field with other countries because I mean, while all the other advanced rich countries had, um, you know, they had 50 years to build great roads and new hospitals and you know, all that stuff, all the physical infrastructure, but the digital infrastructure was so primitive everywhere that my argument, at least to the government at the time, was that, look, this is the way we can catch up because this is a place where we're it not behind. It wasn't just about catching up. Wasn't it also about deepening democracy, improving democracy? Well, it was fundamentally, it was, it was a way of 
getting society to work on a new basis in a way that um, there was greater participation, essentially. I mean, uh, citizenship, citizenship, or inclusivity, uh, being a. Uh, I mean, also very important for us was uh, to reduce a rural rural uh, urban divide in development uh, people feeling a part of things they don't have to be in the the capital city to be doing all kinds of things that you want to do um, it, I mean it was seen as a new way and still is I mean frankly given where most people, countries are as a as a new and better way of organizing society to increase participation what does electronic democracy sound like? A lot of uh, keyboard clicks. <laughs> what does it sound like? I'm not sure what the question means. Keyboard clicks. I mean, people sitting at home on their computers, on their phones. But is there a, a, a sort of an, an orchestral quality to electronic democracy, people being able to, to work together? Is it a cacophony? Is it noisy? Um, it's actually quite silent, I would say. I mean, I made a little joke about the keyboard clicks, but in fact, um, you, so many interactions can be done uh, without talking. Uh, I think it's a general phenomenon, by the way. I think that, you know, you don't see people talking on the phone very much. You see a lot of people with their phones like doing this, but they are not, uh, they're not talking that much. Do you think that one of the problems with contemporary democracy is there's too much noise, that we need more silence, we need to be able to listen? Well, the decibel level that you find on social media is actually <laughs> absurdly high. I mean, you may be sitting silently, but what you basically have is people screaming. <laughs> I mean, they're just screaming, you know. Sort of, uh, uh, Even in Estonia, where people don't tend to scream too much? Well, there's a there's a silent scream, as it were, there as well, <laughs> a monkeyan scream, right? Well, I think it's it's uh, quite apt. Uh, I mean, well, the political situation in Estonia has changed and very recently, and there, I would argue that a uh, the decibel level and uh, and the sort of uh, brutishness of discourse that we did not have in Estonia before is something that we have acquired from being on social media, which as in general has a, uh, has a level of discourse that you, as you would not have basically in before a widespread digital society all over the world. When you see the crisis of democracy all over the world, from the United States to Britain to Italy to Hungary to Poland, what do you think they can most learn from your e-democratic experience? Why should they come to Estonia and look at what you've done? Well, for one, I think that the amount of frustration that you run into simply living your life as a citizen um, is greatly reduced by having the efficiencies. But, I mean, I find that right here, I mean, I am sitting here at Stanford and in a 12-mile radius are the headquarters of Tesla, 
Apple, Google, Facebook, Palantir, and who knows how many other uh, bubbling under the, the billion dollar capitalization. Palantir is probably watching everything we're doing, of course. <laughs> and it's amazing what uh, this place has produced. On the other hand, you try to interact here with the uh, with any public service, with the government, with any agency, the school district, anything in the public sector is is in the 1950s or at best 1960s. Just all paper based, standing in line, taking a number, you know, bureaucracy that it's takes the, forever. It's, it's the DMV experience, magnified. Right. It is. It is the DMV is probably the best example, but it is in everything. And do you think that? digitalizing those services makes us better citizens. Do you have evidence from Estonia of that? Well, nothing, no academic studies. Uh, but but, I but would, anecdotal or your experience, I mean, you pioneered this thing. Well, certainly uh, you already have, <laughs> you have uh, if once you have, when you have far more efficient services, and you don't stand in line at DMV for hours and hours, that I think you have happier citizens, frankly. I mean, it's just... And better citizens, not only happier, well, but more responsible. Right. I think if you're happy, you're, you're less likely to go and leave in a huff and drive your car into someone. Trust levels in Estonia about government are much higher than they are certainly in the United States or Western Europe. Well, it's interesting because basically I would say that at the political level, I mean, here it's like, the guys in government, they're all awful, stupid, corrupt. That, that is, I think, you find that in all democracies. But there's a difference in the government side, which, is, which here is different, which is that the administration, I mean, the way you do interact with the government is um, you trust the system, that it has not failed. It has not failed in... I mean, since we instituted the system, we have not, it has not failed. No leaks, no damage. Uh, and so you get used to the efficiencies. Uh, you get used to things working as opposed to standing in line. <laughs> so, it's, so your argument then is that e-democracy, your argument is that your, your, your digital reforms have strengthened democracy, whether it's electronic or analog. In Estonia. Yeah, I think, well, I would say that uh, people trust governance more here. Um, I mean, much of it actually has to do with uh, corruption reduction. I mean, Estonia is one of the, I mean, by far the least uh, corrupt post-communist country, but we're in the European Union. We are in the, the upper part of the EU in terms of having low corruption. And that is just eliminating all kinds of opportunity. Through digitization, you, you eliminate all kinds of opportunities for corruption, which you see rampant around the world, not at the high level of you know, sort of a high government official taking a bribe, but rather at the lower level, where in so much of the world, um, in order to get a basic service, you have to pay some money to your local official. For something, I remember talking about this in Greece, and they said, "Oh, we call it speed up cash." You know, it's like okay. <laughs> I mean, and that's it's, it's an interesting uh, dichotomy is that the high level corruption that you know makes the headlines is someone has paid someone in the government to do something illegal. 
The problem in most of the world, actually, for the average citizen is you have to pay a government official to do something what he's supposed to do. I mean, what is legal, but he just won't do it unless you pay him. So here you see you get this boost in trust and in, in governance uh, thanks to the fact that there is really you've eliminated the opportunity to actually demand someone, I mean, demand of, of a citizen to pay something, you know, fill out a form to register something. It's all digital. So, I mean, if I want to, I mean, say you're like a person, you want to apply for, a, you know, a child benefit or something. You don't have to go there and stand in line, fill out a form, and then have someone say, well, you know, give me like whatever, some amount of money. It's we know that you have your you live there and you have you know we know from your taxes and all this other stuff that you have three kids and therefore this entitles you for this and you get this you know or we know you're you've reached this age you now are a senior citizen you get a discount on you know on movie theaters or or the bus or something is the electronic ex the the electronic democratic exp experiment in in Estonia is it rearchitecting the basic social contract between citizen and government when it comes to accountability and anonymity well on the accountability side since so much of where the i mean as i said in the last question i mean accountability so often has to do with a low-level civil servant who will not do his job. Whereas, if you eliminate that part of being that part of the citizen governance interaction, where it's just done automatically, it's just you tick off the boxes. Basically, I mean that's what it comes out to. You tick off the boxes. You're entitled to this. You're not entitled to that. You that you don't with that issue of is is the government accountable or not doesn't come up. On the anonymity side, well, that is, I think, more of a problem of the non-governmental sphere, which is that, um, first of all, I mean, you know, people, when they look at the Estonian things, they think, oh, well, what about privacy? And I say, you know, I'm much more worried about privacy in a paper world than I am about privacy in a digital world. Because in the system that we have, we know that anyone who has even access to your data is automatic. There's a log file on that person. I mean, on that interaction. You know, in my country, when I was in office, you know, I was, you know, all our property is all listed there. So anyone can go look at what property I have. Uh, but the other, the other side is that I get to see who's looking at who. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, the sort of the the yellow press would, you know, I'd regularly check up. Oh, does has he bought anything? You know, and, so it gives and, citizens that doing away with anonymity gives citizens more power. Well, in this sense, it's just that you can't go sort of sneaking in there. Another much bigger case is, you know, with medical records. Uh, when the uh, racing car driver Michael Schumacher had this horrible accident a couple of years ago, he, within hours, the largest yellow newspaper in Europe, Bildzeitung, had pictures of his x-rays. That cannot happen in my country, or if that were to happen, if someone were actually, if, I mean, only a doctor who's actually authorized to look at his records would see it, and we would know that this person went and accessed these data at that time. 
so it doesn't happen. So in a paper world, that's a, you just go into a file cabinet, pull out the thing, make a photocopy, put it back in. No one knows. So the accountability is much greater there. Where I see the problem is in the in this other sphere that the the public sphere has become in the internet era so so nasty and there are all kinds of things that happen doxing for example when um, the um, the woman who the woman who during the Kavanaugh hearings here testified against him she's from near here she has had her first of all she had got a huge number of death threats and last I heard, which is about three months ago, she had been forced to move four times from where she lived because anonymously someone would publish where she lived. So anonymity is a threat to democracy. Yeah, I would argue, yes, it is. Uh, plus, plus you have, of course, the disinformation campaigns being orchestrated by anonymous people who perhaps uh, working in St. Petersburg or Moscow or Beijing or somewhere else. Or here. Or here. I think one of the, um, I mean, one of the problems we face in, uh, in a digital era is that you don't know who's doing what. And uh, this was summed up in this uh, 1993 New Yorker cartoon of two dogs. And one dog says to the other, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. That gives people, that allows, I mean, this is basically, there are no social constraints on behavior. If they, if, so you can say the nastiest stuff, you can do the nastiest stuff uh, without any fear of any kind of accountability. And that, that absence of accountability uh, I think is extremely dangerous, has been extremely dangerous, and will continue to be. And you and, and the, uh, the the e democracy experiment in in Estonia does undermine anonymity. It may not do away with it entirely, but it certainly challenges it in some way. Well, in the in the in the uh, governance domain, I mean, uh, you still don't know. I mean, sort of the the media is full of anonymous stories and commentaries and so forth, but at least you know, sort of pulling out someone's health care record, you can't do that. Do you think in the long run the only way to protect truth and democracy is by somehow fixing this problem of anonymity? Oh, absolutely. I, I think, however, there are certain caveats. One of them is that um, we need to do... Uh, you, I mean... <laughs> I think that liberal democracies need to do that. You'll immediately, as soon as you say that anonymity is bad, you say, well, what about the dissidents in some authoritarian mm. country? And what about them? I go, well, I think that if you are, I mean, for ourselves in our democratic space where we have respect human rights and so forth, that that is not a problem. I admit that if you're living in North Korea, um, I mean, if you were to have were to have access to the internet there, I mean, you might want to have anonymity. But on the other hand, I would also argue that in those authoritarian countries, there it does not exist anyway, 
because they know who you are. Uh, they know, I mean, they know who you are. I mean, and China is probably the best example. But, but in the West, in Western democracies, is the only way really to, 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 to fix the wars of misinformation and disinformation and the undermining of truth to, 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 to confront this issue of anonymity? I think we have no choice. I'm not sure it will happen yet, but... It's not going to be popular. It'll be extremely unpopular. On the other hand, if you look at the damage done to people through anonymity, um, then I think we have an obligation as democracies to defend people's rights. And again, this, if someone's going to start publishing, as has happened a number of times, where, oh, he lives there or she lives there, and then you get, you get death threats. Or even worse, you have this uh, phenomenon here in the United States of um, swatting, where an anonymous uh, phone call will come in and say, you know, in this house, someone is being, you know, there's this horrible crime going on there. And of course, SWAT teams go out, then they break in the door, and it turns out there's nothing there. And people, you know, sometimes, occasionally they've been shot because, you know, just trigger happy SWAT team members, or someone gets a heart attack because they're completely shocked when these, you know, 10 guys run in with masks and helmets and bulletproof vests. I mean, uh, I'm not sure my heart would be able to put up with that. Um, so I think that there, I mean, those are clear dangers to, uh, to the well-being of citizens uh, that I think will, after some horrible case, ultimately, uh, ultimately lead to some kind of legislation. Finally, what haven't you achieved on the e-democracy front in, in Estonia that you think you need to achieve to... To, to make it a, a genuine electronic democracy? Well, I would say, <laughs> what I really see is that I, I think that there's not much more we can do in the current context, what really needs to be done in a, in a Europe where people travel all the time, go to different places. I mean, con Europe's constantly on the move um, and where the European Union is suffering from unpopularity that we really need to ex to make the same kind of service we have in Estonia. It doesn't have to be the same exact model, but but those services should be available across Europe. So that you know, I, we have digital prescriptions. I mean, I if I get, I mean, if I get sick or something, I can write my doctor, and he'll just I can go to any pharmacy and get a prescription. But if I go to even Latvia, this next door neighbor, I can't do that. Whereas I mean, I've actually run into that problem. And let, let alone if I go to, say, France, where I came down with a horrible flu when I was supposed to speak in, uh, in front of a full session of the European Parliament. And uh, you know, otherwise, I could have called my doctor and said, no, send me this, send me the, put, put in this prescription, I could go to a pharmacy. Or even more, say, I'm, I want to go to Greece and I, you know, Something happens to me and I go to a doctor. Doctor, okay, he maybe probably knows English, but he certainly isn't going to know Estonian. So I would just authorize my doctor to see my medical records and he would see them already translated into Greek. So he could just say, oh, you're allergic to this and you had that operation and you know, whatever. I mean, those are elementary services for us 
they are unbelievable services for the rest of Europe. And I believe that if we were to move Europe in that direction, uh, we would um, you'd have a lot less of the kind of sort of anti-European feeling that we have. So, I mean, you really, things that work. The other thing I would say is that um, we're moving in a, in, I mean, basically what you can see happening are three different models, broadly, very broadly speaking, of how to approach this digital world. We have the US laissez-faire capitalist model, which is basically let's monetize any information, everyone's data, and we'll uh, make a lot of money and be very rich. Uh, there's the Chinese model, which is, okay, let's, moder uh, let's surveil everyone, monetize everything, but also information will go to the government. And then there's a third slower approach on the part of Europe, which has been so far much more, I guess, humane and sort of privacy centered that looks at, okay, let's look at what is legitimate for governments to do, what is legitimate for companies to do, where do we have this clash between uh, privacy, freedom of speech, and they're wrestling with it. But I think that we are coming up in Europe with a, uh, with a better way of doing things than this kind of rampaging through everyone's data. And the third model of all those three models, from the point of view of democracy, the best one is Europe? If I project into the future, yes, I think it is. Uh, because I do not trust uh, the, the absence of or genuine privacy and personal data uh, security in the United States, as we see every other day, another hundred million data points are stolen, hundred million persons' data are stolen with limited recourse that um, the citizenry becomes potential victims of people who want to do harm. And I think from that point of view, um, having severe restrictions on, on private data, personal data being used and sold and commodified is something that uh, will be in liberal democracies that value human rights will become more and more of an issue. You already see the European privacy legislation, GDPR, being adopted by, for example, the state of California. They just took, took it and sort of tweaked it a little bit, but it applies here. And I think that uh, there will be a groundswell, there is already one, but of uh, antagonism towards the mass sale of every citizen's data that we see right now.